0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Brinefield Services Company, Zelandez. If you are looking for real-time, actionable data, Zelandez is the place to go. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. This is episode 104. My guest today is John Evans, the CEO of Lithium Americas. John's been on the podcast before, and if you've listened to prior episodes, you will be well aware that John used to be my boss. He continues to be my mentor and friend, It's uh, always good to catch up uh, with somebody that's been a significant part of my lithium life. We cover a lot of ground in about 40 minutes, discussing LAC's two projects. That would be Kachari and Thacker Pass, talking about U.S. critical metals policy, supply, demand, capital markets, ESG... Acquiring and developing talent. John is both candid and well spoken. So, without further ado, John Evans. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. John Evans, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks,
1: Joe. Good to see you again.
0: Well, I think it's been too long. I was surprised when I looked at the past episode and you haven't been on since June of 2019. And it was a very different world when we sat in Hahui before you went up the mountain in almost two years ago. And you said something on that podcast and I really do appreciate your backup singers. That's a nice add to the podcast. You said things are not gonna go according to plan. They never do. And then you also talked about building an organization with agility. And this was nine months before (laughs) COVID started and nobody could have imagined what was gonna happen to the world. Can you talk a little bit about how having an agile organization and a great team helped you with both projects as you've had to navigate the uh, COVID universe?
1: Yeah, it's been quite a road We lived through what the dot com bust, um, financial crisis, you know, all these things you think you've seen everything. And now we've had a once in a lifetime pandemic. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's helpful that our first off, we're a flat, relatively flat organization. We're dispersed. So we're used to working sometimes apart. Uh, our IT in the company is actually quite good. So these tools that we're talking over now we had in place. But uh, more than that, you had people you trusted in remote locations to be able to continue to to lead and to grow the organization. So we had an impact, of course. I think everyone knows that in Argentina due to safety issues, due to protocols and so forth. But you had a a strong leadership team there and and a strong foundation where we were able to put in place the right the right processes to be able to deal with it so in both projects so in nevada smaller team but but same types of things were you know we have folks working in Tyvek suits and so forth and the pilot plant to continue work office being uh with less people in it uh, argentina was a real challenge i mean our our medical advisor there is the same who advises the president dr eduardo lopez working with him working with the provincial government we have good support there uh, you know i've become an epidemiologist, uh, a logistician uh, to try to, we have 1,250 people at site right now, all operating under COVID protocols. And we've rented four hotels for pre-quarantine. We were the first to bring in the rapid antigen testing from Abbott into the Argentina. So you got to innovate and be agile to deal with these changing conditions because at the end of the day, we got to execute. And we have the right mix of people uh, that we're able to do that. And, and that'll continue. And as we go forward here, now the market's changing, we're growing, and we're going to have to continue to, as we hire people, they're really in that vein, be comfortable working uh, independently sometimes. do uh, you have the, the deep technical knowledge that's needed uh, to be able to, to participate right away, because we we're not set up to bring somebody on board and onboard them for five months and all that kind of stuff it's senior professional folks, but that culturally, uh, and attitude wise, they have to be able to fit in. So, and I've been really proud of what we've done. We've grown the team in Argentina and they're doing great uh, and in, our, in in Nevada. It's the same. That team now is uh, we've added like 10 people in the last three months, all bespoke and, uh, they've really, really done well. So, and you, you have to be careful to do that too. You can't add in too much at one time to disrupt the workflow. So it's kind of a, a fine balance.
0: So, how has the, we're into month 16 now of, of COVID, how has that affected your timelines? And has there been any positive impact from having kind of be forced to have extra time before you
1: start up? Yeah, I mean, Argentina definitely impacted. We were, uh, we've lost at the end of the day six or seven months because you're working essentially with less density of people. So you're not as productive. So it had an impact on time and an impact on cost. And then you have all these additional costs for testing and quarantine and so forth, masks, PPE, uh, all of that stuff. Now you're right, uh, the flip side for both projects is that you have a little bit more time to be introspective to put in processes that are more robust because while you're trying to barrel ahead to keep on schedule or meet your new amended schedule, you can be a little bit more reflective as you make decisions, and uh, so it's been. I guess been that's the, the silver lining, to some degree. I mean, we took some extra time in Thacker Pass as well. I know people are beating the drum. When are you going to get your defined feasibility study out? You know, we want to do the engineering right. So, uh, and and the market at the same time has changed. I think you and I are both been beating the drum that we're going to be short once we come out of COVID. I didn't expect it to be this short, with no relief in sight for years so you step back a little bit too and that you want to execute correctly in argentina to make sure that you can come online quickly to meet the need and then in in nevada at one point we considered a smaller first stage now we're back to a larger first stage and ensuring that you can you can provide you know both salts at the end of the day carbonate and hydroxide or a mixture of both i think it was helpful in that you could take the time during covid's a little bit of cover on that to be able to do um so you have a better work product at the end of the day that'll really meet the market requirements as opposed to just rushing ahead for news releases or whatever else.
0: So Thacker would now be looking at closer to 40,000 LCE than than 20,000?
1: Over 30. Yeah, yeah. 30 40.
0: yeah. And you never really know until you start up exactly what your capacity is. I mean, that's, that's something I think is underappreciated too. And We saw that with Ombre Muerto, where the the chloride plant was a lot bigger than anybody thought when they uh, were talking about it. LAC's balance sheet is in a much different place now than when we we last did a podcast. Can you talk about your recent capital raises and and your balance sheet and how that probably enhances your ability to take your time on finding exactly the right partner for Thacker Pass. And those are, are my words, not yours. But I'd, I'd be a little surprised if you disagreed with me too
1: much. Yeah. So we were really opportunistic watching the market. Look, if uh, people that are plus and minus on the stock, if you're a believer in the theme and you're uh, and you're a long-term investor, you're happy year over year. Um, you know, in February prior to COVID, I think we are trading at, I don't know, $2. Um, yes, we had a run-up and everybody else had a run-up too, including our uh, producers, SPACs, Tesla. Uh, and now we've settled in at a little better, uh, at, at, at somewhere in the midpoint here, which some people are unhappy with, other people are patient. Um, but in the meantime, we were really very opportunistic in the fall testing the market with and at the market. It went really well. We were done in a month uh, and in January, I'll give credit. Look, our board gave us a lot of latitude. We timed the market perfectly. Uh, We ran out of room on our our shelf. We could have raised a billion dollars, but legally I couldn't do it because I only had 400 million left of capacity on our filed shelf. So there was a huge amount of interest in the company in its future. And we thought about this with a strong balance sheet like this. It gives you so much more flexibility. Uh, there's an opportunity to expand in Argentina relatively quickly. That resource is much bigger than the 40,000 tons that we're we're working to to put into production next year. And and then in Nevada, how you structure that and what you bring to the table, you know, the typical company that's maybe like ours, I'm going to call us an advanced developer. We're not a junior to my mind anymore. Uh, You know, I'll sell half the project and take the proceeds to pay for my piece or whatever else. We don't have to do that anymore. I mean, could we go forward and, and fund it ourselves? Sure, but the flip side is you can be a lot more—you can be a lot more flexible on that structure. Where, look, some companies, you and I were chatting earlier about automotive companies—they don't want to be involved in mining. They want to be involved in the purification piece. So maybe we do a JV in a chemical plant. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that because I have enough cash that. I can handle the front end and I can operate that resource for you and we can collaborate using our tech on the chemical plant and you get what you want where not a lot of companies in our stage with unallocated offtake of we'll call it 40,000 tons can do that. It really, we wanted to have the ability of going back to agility to be strategically agile now where with a strong balance sheet, look at hiring more people uh, where Becoming much more sophisticated internally with our processes growing, preparing this company for the next step. And then when you engage with potential partners, you're on a much different level before. Uh, and, and it changes the tenor of the discussion because you're, you're bringing not only tech people, a resource to the discussion, but I, I've got my own cash too. So I'm not necessarily beholden to them uh, to get everything done. We would like to
0: thank our sponsor, Zolandez who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zelandes Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zelandes.com. That's Z E L A-N-D-E-Z.com. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit now about the the market, both the the global situation and then move it to the domestic uh, area. But there's a lot more certainty now. I think we touched on it just a couple of minutes ago about the growth of EVs, the timing, the fact that even some of the oversupply guys are now saying we're going to be short. We're either in a shortage or we'll be in a shortage Within the next 12 to 18 months, depending on some assumptions, how do you view the global industry's ability to respond to this?
1: Yeah, it's. I, I think I, I was on a. I, think I did a quick blurb on Friday. I think it was on Yahoo Finance, and it's it, it's almost incomprehensible to me. And I think you and I are in the same boat. How you can grow this industry uh, so much bigger in a limited amount of time, and a limited amount of time to me is like you know, we're talking. It was 2021, nine years. The industry is going to grow to be able to service, call it what you want, a million and a half, two million tons of lithium and and battery grade lithium on top of that. Uh, you got this huge bifurcation. I, I don't, I don't know how you do it. I mean, the last run up, and you and I, our history goes back. You know the industry longer than I do, but. You know, the prices that we bottomed out at at 6,500, I would have been doing somersaults in 2010 and 11 with that yeah. kind of pricing. Now we're at 13 plus, and it's going to stay this way for a long time. All these assets, uh, the ones that were idle, they're going to have to come online. And then you have to tap all these new resources. I don't know how you do it that quick. The last run-up we had, what did they bring? maybe 200,000 tons equivalent online over the course of like three years. That's the easy stuff. The, now you're towards the bottom of the glass and you have to dig really hard. Capital intensity is going to go up. We see that already in Australia where 40,000 tons of lithium hydroxide was at $1.4 billion. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's been interesting. Yeah. And that's real, you know, given the cost structure there and so forth. It's still a good investment because the market's going to need it at the end of the day. And the pricing now is going to support that. But I think it's a real conundrum in that even if you're an operator, bringing a capacity expansion online takes you two years and that's fraught with risk, let alone a greenfield that, you know, has a seven to 10 year timeline. We're almost too late. almost too late.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. Cause I, I've been, I've been banging the, it's, it's really too late to not have a, have a situation where there are going to be people that put in orders for EVs that get an 18 month uh, certificate to get in line. I think let's, now talk about the U.S. And our current level of production in, in this country, because we're both sitting in the United States, is, is, a, is a little under 5,000 metric tons. Yeah. It has been for quite some time. I'm, and that's at the resource level. I'm not talking about the processing that uh, Live Ent does in North Carolina or Abelmoral does in North Carolina. But I, I think you cited this number, and it's it's been mentioned pretty widely that, a reasonable expectation in 2030 is 350,000 tons just for the United States. Just
1: for the U.S., yeah.
0: To me now, all this talk that people do about everybody else's projects, we need all of the projects.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think, um, I'm careful not to, and I've said it, I've spoken to the government, there will be one project, but you'll need multiple projects. I, I think... Look, the whole thing, this is we're not North Korea and you say we're going to be like independent or whatever else. You, you need some level of domestic supply uh, because you want the rest of the supply chain to go to come here or pieces of it. Um, the OEMs are serious about that in our discussions. They want to have uh, their own ecosystems here or ecosystems to support them. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and uh, you're going to need multiple projects to be able to do what? that. And, and I mean, geopolitically, you've got 350,000 tons out of 2 million. You're gonna have a race for this kind of stuff. And it already has started around the world. I think the U.S. is a jurisdiction, U.S. and Canada people like. Pricing will support it. And I think the government understands all that stuff. Uh, and I know the OEMs do. Um, it's, for, for the government and, and any of the OEMs, it's about jobs. You're going to lose jobs in ICEs. How do I replace them uh, to support this new uh, tech, which, like the F-150, they had 20,000 orders yesterday, day one.
0: Well, I, I think when the president, who's not supposed to drive a car, even if he's on a test track, it <laughs> cool. drives a car, and you know, I watched on CNBC this morning, the, the lady who's in charge of the whole F-150 program was talking about it, and they could not have staged better publicity for for that vehicle that does zero to sixty in four seconds and change. But when you you look at what the new administration is trying to do in, in all the discussion about building out an independent US supply chain, how do you see that desire actually from a practical standpoint helping your project and the many others that we have that if I even go through every reasonable project in the U.S., we still don't get anywhere near the 350 number in 2030.
1: No, I, I think it helps immensely in that you have an audience now which is much broader that this people aren't painting this as it's a national security issue. I'll call it a national imperative around Competitiveness to support the development of the kinds of jobs that you want to see in the future, as coal continues to decline, as fleet uh, compositions change, and have a higher uh, composition of uh, battery electric vehicles or even hybrids that have lithium ion batteries in them. Uh, I think that clicks now with uh, with the administration and what's come out from the Biden administration is a much broader mandate around tech and supply chains, and jobs, and also uh, certainty around the supply chain where you can source uh, materials domestically and also from areas of the world that uh, we'll call it, uh, there's a lot less contention with and ESG on top of this, right? So look, uh, you see it playing out now in solar panels, right? 30% of the polysilicon comes from Xinjiang province. You've been there. I've been there. So environmentalists now are involved in that, well, this has a piece, the ESG piece has in it as well, where we want to understand that you're getting now into lithium, the, what do you call it, the provenance. Where does this material come from? How is it processed? What's the carbon footprint? Ten years ago, nobody cared about that stuff. Uh, Now people care about all that. So there's a lot of different elements, which I think are hugely supportive for resource development, chemical processing in the U.S., and for other pieces of the supply chain to come here so and it's going to take years as you said it's almost too late but you got to start sometime
0: it's interesting as I get calls and more and more people are interested again this kind of reminds me of 2016 uh, when we had the boom then but there's just a, a belief that the U.S. has this huge lithium market now I guess because of Tesla and people are always shocked when I say look the cathode for Tesla's Gigafactory is not made in the United States. idea of the proximity to the Gigafactory. Between lithium and the final battery pack, how do you see the what the Biden administration wants to do? Do you see cathode production here within two or three years on a significant level?
1: Not significant, but I think you'll see cathode production here so you're right i mean panasonic ships in a precursor and they do the coating and the winding here and so forth but you've got um the BASF here you've got innovations with solid power and with quantumscape and others that are solid state batteries where some of those materials are going to be different um i think the catalyst is here so it'll be on a smaller level uh where look it's almost like in internal combustion engines. When Toyota sets up a factory here, they ship all their parts in. And then over time, you have this ecosystem. You drive through Georgetown, by Georgetown, Kentucky, and you see an NKG plant. I see another forging plant that's a Japanese company, which is great. uh, But it took time to bring them all in uh, over the course of years. So I think you need to start somewhere. But yeah, two or three years, I don't think you're going to see it pop up overnight. But I think you'll start seeing green shoots.
0: Well, we have... uh... Seemingly a great opportunity here to, to move the U.S. forward on green energy, but then you always get the flip side of that, which is the not in my backyard. You know, I I'd love to see this happen. I just don't want a a mine within a hundred miles of my house. How do you view the the tension we seem to have right now? Even some of the people in the government make statements about, well, it has to be done responsibly, but there's no real explanation of what responsible mean a lot of the the type of articles that we've seen come out uh, that that aren't really pro critical minerals development shall we say how do you see that
1: tension being worked out well so i think if you look at in general if you look at climate change you you haven't i haven't seen any major NGOs come out and say well I support climate change but I don't want any of this development to happen because at the end of the day I think they understand well I need batteries to do this I got to get this stuff from somewhere uh, I'll go back to that ESG discussion around and I want it to come from places where I feel confident that the processing is done in a way that it's not destroying the environment so I think it's helpful in that like I look at the press and it sells papers right being a polemicist uh well, the other side of the story is this, and I found three people that didn't think this is a good idea. But when you get to data and facts, look, every project has risks. So that's the other, I mean, everyone's like, well, I had the silver bullet. There's no silver bullet for lithium or nickel or rare earths. It's about mitigating the risk, which for, in our case, you go through that when you go through the uh, National Environmental Protection Act, the permitting process, using best available, best technology, it manifests itself in higher costs. But I think people are going to be willing to pay for that. But yeah, it's it's tension. What I always like to talk about with folks on the other side is like, well, do you believe in renewables? Yeah. Like solar power and uh, wind is great. Well, um, today, California generates more electricity during the day with solar power than they can use. They don't have large-scale battery yards, utility scale to store all that. So they turn on beaker plants at night. In the state of Florida, I know they've announced they're going to, I think it's a 40 megawatt hour storage facility for batteries. You need batteries for that too. So if you support re- renewables, all this stuff is interconnected. And I think is folks have come out more on that side of the aisle where I think there's a acceptance now during, during the election. Elizabeth Warren, you know, corrected herself. You haven't heard anything from the major NGOs uh, throwing mud at this. And even the United Mine Workers have come out saying, well, yeah, there's going to be a transition. Uh, and we have an example of that with North American coal where you're going to have coal miners basically doing lithium mining, which is an example I think you can use you know, for assets like ours. Uh, absolutely. And, and look, the folks that work on our plants, it's chemical engineering. Like, I, you know, I'm not a miner, neither of you. I mean, we're guys that came out of the chemical industry. Um, it's chemical engineering at the end of the day. We've hired people from agricultural chemicals, oil and gas. The skills are all fungible for materials that go into the new economy. We, uh,
0: we we touched on ESG a little bit, but as I read more and more about, especially the EU and some of the requirements, the, the bureaucrats in uh, Brussels, I guess, are are putting in the requirements for traceability and yeah. how do you see that impacting your projects or projects in general and how much added cost will there be or or is this just something that there's a an initial cost and then it's just a minimal maintenance to keep the keep the process running to keep the credentials on
1: esg uh intact that's at the end of the day i had somebody i talked to folks in the eu and i said um, are you willing to pay for it and they said oh absolutely i haven't seen it yet uh so I think it's going to be a, a balance where, you know, we kind of go back to, can we shift this overnight? No. So there's just for some certain jurisdictions people are, look, you saw it in cobalt, right? You see it over and over again in cobalt, uh, where, you know, in the case of lithium, you can't spec it out, right? I mean, there's, a, I can't get away from lithium. It's the common denominator in every single battery chemistry. So it's an issue that's going to have to be dealt with, but the demand is so great the way the infrastructure is put together now, yeah, I mean, if I looked at carbon footprint, it's pretty big. If I'm shipping stuff from one continent to another, and what kind of power am I using, calcine and so forth, where am I getting the water? There's a recognition of all that. But if you're an automotive company, and they're going to go all electric by 2035, how do you balance that? You're going to have to put together, I think, a a strategy that's gradual and incremental. And to your point, you're going to have to pay more, which, yeah, at the end of the day, that's a I love those discussions. Uh, Look, if lithiums, what what is it? A lithium-ion battery, eighty-five kilowatt-hour Tesla, ten thousand dollars a ton was eight hundred fifty dollars. So if the cost doubles to twenty thousand dollars a ton, what I got another eight hundred fifty bucks that somebody has to eat, it's nothing. I mean, you you pay more in inflation for steel and plastic on cars. I think pricing—that's what gives me confidence that we're never going back to what we had before, and pricing is going to have to be elevated. Where I think better. Deposits can be developed and in ways such that they can address those things over time because the returns are going to be there for investors to put their money behind them. I guess that's that's what I think is going to happen. You know, one of the interesting things to me is
0: in different jurisdictions, who manages the process, and and I think we don't know that yet. No. I mean, okay, I uh, always like to talk about the team. When we talked two years ago, you actually had a a much smaller team. You had a great team, but it was. Small, can you talk to me about how the team looks today? You've made, you've made some significant talent additions, I believe, and how big a challenge has that been? Or you do have probably the best, I'll use a, a 1980s term, Rolodex <laughs> of anybody that I know. And how have you gone through the process of attracting and selecting the kind of talent that you've
1: you've added? Well, I think in Argentina we've bolstered the team uh, and added in some selective hires there at different levels as the project grows as you get to different stages you need different kinds of talent and I think we've been really successful partially due to our own look. Like where the, the it's the biggest asset that's going to come online in decades uh, it was the largest earth moving project in Argentina it got a lot of press so I have. We have people from Peru. We have people from others. Hey, I want to come work for you guys. And it's been really nice to see we've been able to pick from the litter a little bit around culture, around skill set, around background, to be able to selectively put people in there where they can they can add value right away. In the U.S., you're right, the team has grown per capita level, it's grown even bigger. And I would put our team up against any producer. I'll say that, uh, and people might laugh at me. Look, I, I've run this type of stuff before. I know the kind of skill sets that you need. The team that's in Nevada, world-class. Uh, and I think it's, right, number one, having the right connections. Number two, unsolicited. I get stuff on LinkedIn, I, and, and it's young people that want to come work in this industry. So you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, who, who, kids, they don't want to be an engineer. I don't want to be in the chemical industry. I don't want to be in mining. When you put this element now that, well, I'm addressing climate change. We're an exciting growth sector: electric vehicles, renewable energy. Uh, we just hired a woman who just received her PhD from uh, Penn State. I was in competition with MP Materials. She came to us. I like what you guys are doing. The skill set she has is we actually needed at the time. She's an expert in metallurgy and leaching. You know, where the hell do you find these people? And uh, she actually sought us out and said, "I want to come work for you." And she starts at the end of the month. So it's been. That with the markets recovering at the same time, with I think a culture of we're not political, it's somewhat flat organization here. People are going to get their hands dirty. They like that kind of environment. I've been really happy with the, the way the team's developed, and that'll be our next challenge. But how do you scale that? So, you know, adding ten people is one thing. Adding in fifty is going to be another. Uh, but we're, we're we're positioned well with the systems and infrastructure we have in place. And then folks that have come in from allied industries, which right. lithium, if you go back and you look at lithium, there's a lot of folks that we all have failures in lithium as well. Uh, it's not an easy industry. So if you hadn't had a failure in lithium, you, you, you either quit before uh, <laughs> uh, or uh, you got lucky, but uh, um, it's a tough industry to be in. You don't necessarily need folks all from the lithium industry. It's about skill sets. So chemical engineering, metallurgy. Uh, hydrogeology, um, that's how we've really screened folks. And then I'll te- you, teach you what you need to know about inorganic chemistry around lithium or lithium compounds. But you got the right attitude and you got the right base skills. Uh, that's worked out wonderfully. I mean, I've got folks from a whole broad sector, even in Argentina, that have come out of specialty chemicals, oil and gas. Boom, they came in and, and uh, they've worked out wonderfully.
0: Yeah, some of the things you've mentioned, you, you've actually Put reality behind some of the comments, like what are you going to do with coal miners? In your case, yep. there's a, there's a synergy between the skill sets. Final final question here. Besides getting into uh, the revenue production by starting up Kachari, what do you view beyond that as your two or three most significant challenges in the next few years?
1: I mean, talent's always one. We'll go back to that again, and we've been successful, but uh... Scaling quickly uh, is always a challenge and fraught with risk. And you could add the wrong people or people into things, and we've all had that experience where sand in the in the in the gears and it can cause problems. And replacing them on the fly is is not easy all the time. So, human capital will always be um, a challenge that we have to keep our our hands around with that to the processes in the company business processes have had to change to become more big company like relatively quickly um we have a pretty low overhead uh, and that's it's not changing quite yet but kind of look out and you're like geez we're gonna have to really get serious around some of these things managing capital markets uh is always a challenge um you know being public's not fun you know i don't uh, if you're going to send me tweets on when my next news announcement is, I'm not going to tweet back, uh, you know, talking to your audience. Uh, we we uh, trust us in that. I think we've done a really good job getting to where we're going to. And if you look at the quality of the assets, the quality of the team dealing with adversity and coming out of this, I, I would have never believed coming out of COVID with over $500 million of cash on our balance sheet, along with one project, which is on the precipice of going into production and the other. uh and which is um, very close now to um, tying things up and uh, in, in, in moving forward in, in Nevada with has a huge amount of interest um, from a whole host of people that I think people would scratch their head and say, holy smokes, these people are interested in getting lithium. It's uh, it's actually been really, really exciting with a backdrop environment, which is going to be it's great, but it's a risk. There's a ton of pressure. Like, like I get called people are like, why don't you have an offtake agreement? I don't want one yet. I want, uh, I want to figure out the right partner and right strategy first. Offtakes, we have people calling all the time because material is not available. Uh, not in the kind of uh, volumes people want and not you know, in terms of multi-year contracts that they want as well. So that's a uh, the, the issue is going to be really, how can you do things faster, more reliably to bring stuff online? Because back to our earlier question, I don't know how you do all this stuff. Yeah, I'm proud that we can, we'll make, up to 40,000 tons throughout this first phase in, in Thacker and then go to 60. Okay, well then after that, all right, well, I'm gonna put a rail line in. Uh, I'm gonna to have to do more. I mean, it's a huge amount of work and folks like, and I know the question will be at that point, well, how do you do it right now? It's really tough to do. Um, so I, I think that's gonna be a real uh, thing that I worry about and that the industry stumbling and tripping and that even folks that are current producers, there's a litany of stories of failures, which is to be expected but you don't have a lot of room for error anymore. And, and, and the backdrop of, of billions of dollars being invested by major automotive manufacturers, uh, it's gonna be a stressful environment to try to respond in time and to try to provide material that is gonna be able to be usable.
0: So, yeah, if you, if you add up all the discussed EV models by all the legacy manufacturers now, that's really hard lithium math. It's just shocking to me. How it just seems to be assumed that the industry will be able to uh, perform when so many projects, you know even the remaining good projects out there that are, are not part of the big four aren't financed? No.
1: You're, I think you will see much bigger companies get involved in this space that have access to lots of capital and have made big bets like this before. I think it's, it's going to happen. And I think folks should hang on. And that you said it earlier before. Everyone kind of thinks this is massive today. It's not. It's, it got great potential and it's going to happen. Uh, I was 10 years too early the first time I got involved. But just be patient. Things are a little bit of a lull right now. Um, you know, markets are going to take a breather and so forth. But if, if, you, if you're convinced this is going to move this way, and I am, you know, the sky's the limit. Uh, it, it, it just markets are choppy. But yeah. at the same time, that's why we raised money, just doing your work. That was, I think, I don't know what words you put to
0: it, but I, I agree, it was it couldn't have been better timed. That was one of the biggest surprises of COVID to me, was that the market didn't really drop like we thought, and EVs continued to their growth trajectory uh, after just a like quarter or two of, of slowness. And now we're at the point where, it's just become the reality that, oh, my God, where, where's my lithium going to come from? I think your phone's going to keep ringing.
1: <laughs> yeah. And a lot of new players were before it was just, you know, Elon and Tesla. Now, look, it's Volkswagen, it's Ford, it's General Motors. It's all these other folks uh, backed by policy in the U.S. I mean, Europe, EV sales grown more than China. So it's really um, becoming a reality now that, uh, that's not going to change.
0: It's going to be a balanced market too, from my perspective. When we were talking before, in twenty nineteen, LFP was only considered for buses, and and now got LFP back. But you also have new high nickel. No matter what you produce, it's going to be in short supply. Whether you do carbonate or you do hydroxide and. Ultimately, I, I think, you know, you can comment if you'd like, but I think ultimately you're you're doing something besides those two products because Solid State, even as a niche product, will be a significant and the people who can add value there are going to do very well.
1: It's coming. I mean, uh, it's not new. You know, we, we worked on an analog of this 10 years ago. Um, these guys are going to, these folks are going to figure it out. And you're right, you're going to need. Different lithium chemicals for that, a different infrastructure for that, but the potential of you know, doubling the energy density in a battery, having a smaller cell, uh, a smaller pack, rather, it's uh, it's huge. And there's too much money behind it. Um, it's it's, it's going to be part of, of the value chain here in the future.
0: Okay, I'm only going to ask you one rapid fire question this time, and it's pretty basic. In the last 16 months, what do you think is the most significant lesson you learned, not necessarily from a business perspective, but just life lesson from the way everything changed during COVID? Yeah,
1: I think taking things for granted, right? So uh, being able to fly off and see your family in person, uh, meeting folks or just having meetings with people in person. We can't go on this way. We're a social species. So I know some folks are really comfortable that work will be like this forever. I, I, you make it work because we're flexible and adaptable uh, uh, beings, but so much was taken away so quickly. Um, you really start to, to think about all the stuff you missed out on and what you took for granted in life. Uh, that's, I think it's a lesson for everybody where uh, you're relegated to your little bubbles uh, with, you know, away from your family, away from your friends. That uh, was tough. So I think, we all need a little, little bit more in the moment and be more appreciative of uh, other people, your family and so forth, because um, it can just take it away, you know, without any warning.
0: All right. While well, I've thought of another one, cause I know you're a reader. <laughs> what, what's the best book you've read since the last time we talked on, on the podcast anyway?
1: Actually, this has been good for reading though too. I read like a book a month now. Uh, what's my wife's chagrin leaving the lamp on all night long now but um i actually uh read uh the man who ran washington which is a, a biography about james baker and just oh yeah, the top yeah. 70s it's a great book i mean that's uh, like i'm not a politico or anything else but growing up in the 70s and 80s and then kind of how things well used to work in washington maybe they'll get that way again but uh was really a fascinating story of a of a a person that I know you, you and I both know and saw on the news all the time. Sure. Who's, you know, retired now, but uh, really gave you a good insight into, well, in some cases, how we got here, but um, you know, how, how things really work behind the curtain and, and how, how that generation of government for people work. That it was a great book. Great book. I highly recommend
0: John Evans. Thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy and it's great to have you back on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks for inviting me.
0: It is always a pleasure to talk to John Evans. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did recording it. If you want to follow John on Twitter, and admittedly he doesn't tweet that much, uh, but he is on Twitter, at JDEvans4005. The Global Lithium website is globallithium.net and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Global Lithium. Thanks for listening.